This is the Maker Views Podcast. Welcome to the show. Let's do this. How's it going, everybody? Hey, I'm Scott Matson, and this is Maker Views. This is the Maker Views Podcast. Welcome. I'm really excited to share this particular episode with you. I had the pleasure of sitting down and speaking with Ryan Montgomery. He is the founder and co-owner of Montgomery Distillery in downtown Missoula, Montana. Ryan and his wife Jenny opened this distillery quite a few years back now. This episode, he really paints the picture of, uh, of what that was like in the beginning phases and what they're doing today, the processes and the folks involved. And he gives great advice to other makers that are just starting out. I asked him what, uh, what his biggest lessons learned and piece of advice is, and uh, so stay tuned for that. A quick reminder, if you like what you're hearing on the Maker Views podcast, I would really appreciate a review and share this uh, with your friends and subscribe, all the above. It really helps out. Do this in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Without further ado, let's just dive right in and hear from Ryan. Kind of an odd start, but um, my wife and I were living overseas and uh, that's when I started home brewing. And at the same time, I had kind of this yearning to move back to Montana where I grew up and <clears throat> incorporate some of my family's background, which is in agriculture, growing grain basically, um, into a business. And I had thought that brewing might be the way to go or a brewery might be the way to go. And uh, so I got into home brewing. Um, I love that. And then kind of a chance business trip to Germany brought me to a small distillery outside of Munich, and uh, that just kind of opened the, my eyes to the, the fact that you could also distill on a small scale just like you can uh, brew. And uh, so that got me thinking, and then at the time, we wanted to move to Missoula. This is like maybe in 2005, 2006 was when we were living overseas. Um, and at the time in Missoula, I think there were three breweries or four or something, you know? Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, geez, there's no way there could, Missoula could support a fifth brewery. <laughs> um, so I kind of turned my, my eyes towards the ceiling and started learning about that and visiting as many as I could. Um, obviously, it's proved wrong <laughs> massively on the, on the brewery front. I think there's 12 or 15 yeah. or 100 here now. <laughs> They're all great. Uh, it's such a great... Um, town to be in for beer but uh so that's kind of what initially kind of turned my and i'd always been a huge fan of um scotch whiskey single malt scotch and all the varieties uh you have in in scotch whiskey and that was kind of my initial goal and about four years in we came out with our first single malt and um last year we released our second release of single malt which was a four-year-old which was um nice to nice to be able to kind of come back around to the product that, that brought it, brought me to it, you know, brought me right. my interest. <clears throat> and I've always been a fan of gin and gin and tonics and yeah. gin cocktails. So I want to explain where we are here. You wouldn't necessarily realize this going into Montgomery's main tasting room, but behind that area is a wide open motorcycle shop. Ryan and his employees all love riding and it's really ingrained in their company's culture. It was such a unique spot to sit down and speak with him. 
Our conversation led to me asking more about the beginning of starting and running this business, and then also about what he does today. In the beginning, um, in the first years, I was a distiller and distilled a lot of the time and had my hand in that. Um, And as we've grown, um, I guess my role's like taken me farther and farther away from that, which is unfortunate because it's my favorite part of the business. Um, But I have two excellent distillers who are uh, better than I am in in almost every aspect of it. So uh, I have put my trust in them so that I can, you know, sit behind a desk for um, most of the day and do what's necessary, the nuts and bolts of running a business, you know. I, I kind of jump in um, when these guys need some time off or um, if we're working on a new project, we all put our heads together uh, about how we're going to tackle it. And then we um, kind of all jump in together in the production of it. And we're all on kind of the tasting committee. So when we um, vat our whiskeys, so when we taste barrels to decide what we're going to release when um, – the two distillers, I and, and myself and uh, uh, my wife and a couple of uh, bartenders uh, upstairs, we uh, taste through the barrels, taste through what we want to blend um, so that we have uh, the best product we can. So it's really interesting how saying yes to one project, one collaboration can shape the future of what you'll produce. Ryan ran into this after partnering with a local organization on a really unique spirit. This spirit is now their highest volume seller. Vodka came first and gin came a few months after. Um, and then we were just vodka and gin for a couple of years, maybe maybe a little over a year. And then we came out with Aquavit, um, which is like a Scandinavian spirit. Gotcha. Um, we kind of fell into that. We didn't, we didn't really plan on making it a mainstay product of ours. The, uh, there's a local fraternal organization in town. Well, they're all over the place, but uh, Sons of Norway, which is some, mm. it's like yeah. the Elks or the Moose, or, but it's for Scandinavians. They asked if we could make an aquavit for them um, because it's a traditional Scandinavian drink around Christmas time. They asked if we could make them a batch around Christmas. So mm. we dove into it uh, with gusto and uh, learned a bunch about it. My wife had been an exchange student in Denmark when she was young, so she had... Um, kind of a a palette for Aquavit and we worked on it and then released the batch for Christmas and then that sold out very quickly. So we made some more and it just, um, we just kept making it because it kept selling. So it's, it's definitely one of those products that, um, you have to hand sell because not many people have heard of it. Uh, but, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful spirit and it, it's actually ended up being outside of the state of Montana. It's our number one seller. Yeah. Usually, uh, it's drunk straight at Christmas. And that's a lot of times what people's, if they have like a Scandinavian background, what their association with it is, it's like a shot basically. Gotcha. But it's become, <clears throat> it's become a, a bit of a trend. And again, I wish I was smart enough. I wish I was smart enough to say that we foresaw the trend, but it's become a bit of a trend with bartenders because it's just a, it's a very mixable spirit and they mm-hmm. like having it on their bar so they can, um, using cocktails and to have, make something unique. Our conversation then led to me inquiring more about an apprenticeship that I'd known Ryan had gone through. 
He went through this before pursuing the path to opening his own distillery. He shares more about this experience next. It was at uh, Springbank Distillery, um, which is in Campbellton, Scotland. And um, it's the, I would, I would say it's the most traditional um, production distillery in, in Scotland, probably. I could be wrong. There's probably people that do more traditional or more um, authentic or old-fashioned or whatever you want to call it. But um, they uh, do things um, largely the way they were done hundred years ago in many respects. Um, they floor malt all of their barley. Uh, instead of having, uh, you know, um, buzzers or lights that go off when things need to be changed, little bells ring. Uh, so it's really, it's really cool. And it's, it's kind of breaks everything down to its, um, most elemental form basically in the mm. process. And they make extremely, um, wonderful whiskey at the same time. So, um, uh, I worked uh, with a guy named Frank McCarty, who's since retired, but he's kind of a um, legend in the Scotch and Irish uh, distillery world industry. And uh, went there and, and learned how they do it. And I can't say um, um, there was a ton of crossover uh, specifics between what we do and what they do, but there was a lot of philosophical crossover between what we do and what they do. Um, we try to do as much um, in-house and by ourselves and by our own hand as we possibly can, going <clears throat> all the way down to to growing our own grain and growing our own grain varietals on our on our distillery farm in central Montana, and um, and basically having our hand in, in as many steps of the process as we can. So we are, you know, we control of our product. We control from the field to the finished bottle for the most part. That's great. Yeah. yeah there's a, awesome. there's a couple of exceptions. Um, obviously there's some ingredients that we can't grow and don't want to, um, like citrus for our gin, grapefruit right. and lemon is what we use. And that's not going to be available locally. Or, and, uh, it's not something we can make ourselves, but, um, and then malted barley, we don't have a malting, our own malting facility or malting floor. So we buy our malted barley from, um, a facility out of Great Falls. But for what we can control, we try to. So, what uh, along the way, I suppose there's probably been maybe some mishaps or, you know, just lessons learned. What would you share with other makers in general, um, as far as what, yeah, what advice? Or- yeah, I think probably the best piece of advice that I got when we were starting out was, um, you know, it, when you, especially when we're doing something where we can and. Uh, you can try a lot of different variations or a lot of different products. In our case, there's Mm -hmm. a thousand and one different types of spirits out there. And it's just like, what do you want to put your, your focus on? And I think with any business, when you start, when you get to the point where you're profitable and you have um, some success and things are going along, you have more opportunities than you could possibly do. And you don't know which ones are, going to pan out and be wonderful and you don't know which ones are going to just be a waste of time and money. So one of the best pieces of advice that I got early on was, um, you know, take chances, but make sure your failure, all your failures are survivable basically, Mm -hmm. you know, so don't, don't ever bite off um, more than you can chew, but try as as much as you can on a limited scale. So, and we've done that, you know, we've come out with, um, 
a handful of products that we didn't continue. I mean, there was a small market for them, but um, it just wasn't enough to, to justify the effort. And there's still a couple. Um, we make a Kirschwasser, for example, which is a cherry brandy. Hmm. And it's, it definitely doesn't justify itself in terms of economics. We lose money on it every year. Um, we, we go up to um, Flathead Lake. Their little microclimate up there can grow cherries. So we go up there and harvest – well – we hire some pickers and um, get about five or 6,000 pounds of cherries and then wow. rent a commercial pitter, pit them all, bring them down here, make a cherry wine, and then distill the wine into brandy hmm. and then age it for two years and then bottle it. And when you add up all the costs, it's, it's certainly not making any money. It's, not, it's losing money. But we do it one week, two weeks a year uh, in the summer, and it's become – kind of a tradition for us and it's a way for our distillers to kind of you know flex their muscles a little bit to mm. say we can make this you know it's and it's it's outstanding it's delicious it's yeah i put it up against um some of the best cherry brandies in the world but um it's a way for us to say we can do this you know and yeah. uh you know but it's not something i'm gonna dump a whole lot of effort into so under the state law, the only thing we can serve in our tasting room that is alcohol that we've made ourselves. Gotcha. So over time, in order to expand our cocktail menu and give our bartenders different um, flavors to play with, um, we've been making a kind of our own liqueurs and our own syrups and our own shrubs um, just to have a decent cocktail selection. Basically, yeah. so it's kind of forced us to be creative. So that's where our coffee liqueur came from. So we wanted to have a white Russian. So, right. but we can't go out and buy a coffee liqueur. Uh, um, so we have to make our own. So we have to figure out how to do that. Huh. So that we made our own coffee liqueur and we just had it for the <clears throat> bar um, for a couple of years. And then we just a lot of people um, had asked if they could purchase it. And uh, so after a couple of years, we decided to to bottle the recipe and, and make it a kind of a mainstay product. So we have that now. And the same is for all of the syrups and shrubs that we have. We've been using them for five years behind the, behind the bar and really refining the recipes and making them at scale. And this, it was just a matter of going through the hoops of labeling and registering and, and uh, distributing them. We make um, a Bloody Mary mix, hot sauce, a Worcester sauce. So that's all, that's kind of a, a funny story. So Tad, he's a classically trained chef, and that's his background, um, which makes a great um, individual to come up with cocktails because he's really oh, into flavors and how they mix. But he wanted to make a Bloody Mary mix because he wasn't happy with anything on the market, really. So he makes ours out of fresh um, produce, um, fresh vegetables, and, and um, all these great ingredients. And then uh, he was just making it here at the distillery for the taste room. And then Bloody Mary mix is, is mostly Worcestershire sauce. Um, and so he didn't like the Worcestershire sauce on the market, so he decided to make his own. And then he was using a hot sauce uh, for the spice, and he didn't like the hot sauce on the market, so he decided to make his own hot sauce too. So he was making all, all three of these things. <laughs> And so we wanted to bottle the Bloody Mary, and we thought, well, since we're making our own Worcestershire sauce and hot sauce, we might as well bottle those too. And that kind of started our line. 
and now we have uh, ginger syrup, honey shrub, and yeah. and uh, uh, mixed berry shrub, and different syrups. So that's kind of expanded slowly. It's not a big part of our business, but it's it's a, a nice compliment. Our conversation led to the branding behind the now iconic Montgomery logo, bottle labels, and just the brand overall. That is overall is my wife, Jenny Montgomery. She's got the eye for all of that stuff. And we've, we've used uh, several really great designers um, over the years. Well, we started out with for uh, kind of our logo and the gin and the vodka um, was a company out of um, London called Stranger and Stranger. It was just, just outstanding design. A lot of what they focus on is spirits and beer and wine. And they are uh, probably the best in the world, uh, in my opinion. Um, but they've they've won several awards for what they've done. But they're probably the best in the world for that category of design. And um, but they're very they're, they they charge best in the world prices. Oh, yeah. You know, Absolutely. as a matter of fact, when we first um, when we first looked into or started thinking about design before we opened, um, we looked for who was the best in the world at this. And we found them, and we loved what they did. And so my wife contacted them and said, we love what you do. I'm sure we can't afford you, but we're a small distillery in Montana that we're starting up. And they came back, and they said, uh, and they work for you know large distilleries around the world. Mm. But they came back, and they said, um, yeah, you can't afford us. We'll give you a break because we like your story. And... Um, we think it's cool. So after the vodka and the gin, we went back to them for our next design. And they were like, yeah, no more breaks. <laughs> You'd have to pay a full freight on the next one. And we said, oh, we can't afford it now. So well, I'd love to go back to them at some point. But and then um, following them, we used a local designer named Matt LaRubio, who's now oh, one, of the, yeah, one of the corners at Western Cider. So if you follow Western Cider on Instagram or Facebook or something and see how great their design is, that's mm-hmm. all him. And he designed our our sudden wisdom and our single malt labels, which are two of my absolute favorites. They, they are exactly what we wanted, uh, but better. And, uh, unfortunately he went and uh, started his own cider and was no longer designing. It's awesome that Matt was able to leave his mark behind here. Everything about the Montgomery brand is very aesthetically pleasing and really quite unique. So Ryan and Jenny Montgomery are both very active in the Missoula community and they consistently give back and are using their platform to do good. Ryan explains more about this next. Probably our biggest one, um, our biggest event that we support on an annual basis is the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival. Um, They're neighbors of ours and they're, you know, they're kind of the epicenter of what they do takes place right around us. Um, And it's just a great kind of international event for Missoula, um, which is a, a wonderful thing to be a part of during the middle of winter, you know, in February uh, when they have their film festival. Um, but there's a lot of places that we support um, uh, on a regular basis through either our Moscow Mondays or um, through uh, providing, you know, some sort of service or, or product to um, the Missoula Food Bank and the Montana Food Bank the um, Clark for coalition. We tend, we tend to focus on three areas, um, which is um, Washington's Children's Center, but is, is the, the 
kind of the landscape of our community. So mm -hmm. Five Always Land Trust and the Clark Fork Coalition and Blackfoot Challenge of like protecting and preserving the beauty of uh, why everyone lives here, basically. Right. You know, um, what makes Missoula great. Um, and then uh, we'll support um, uh, anything that, that helps lower income people in, in our community. Um, um, and then kids uh, and uh, the disability community. So awesome. that's kind of what we try to focus on. We're not strictly uh, focused on that or, you know, we don't hold ourselves to strictly to that, but um, that's try to kind of what we want to try to focus on. Very nice. Yeah. Again, they really are consistently spreading goodwill in this Missoula community. They host the Moscow Mondays that he referenced there, where they redistribute the wealth to a different nonprofit each week. I really do highly encourage you to check out the distillery for a number of reasons, this included. Getting back to Ryan personally a bit more, I ask what books may have influenced him as a maker. Yeah, well, the first one that comes to mind sitting back here is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which... Um, and there's another one that's somewhat similar, which is, um, I think it's called Shop Class is Soulcraft. Have yeah. you heard of that one? Yeah, I've, I've heard of it. I've yeah. Heard of that, yeah. And it's just kind of both of them kind of in, in different ways, just kind of delve into the meditative aspect of um, working on a machine, mm -hmm. essentially, or, or doing some sort of. Gosh, uh, for lack of a better term, maybe like blue collar work, you know, making, yeah. doing something with your hands. And, you know, when you are working on a motorcycle or a car or whatever, you constantly are coming up against unforeseen obstacles, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, you're not quite sure how you're going to noodle it out. But if you just kind of keep going at it, you can, you right. can get there. And uh, that's super fulfilling, um, you know, both from a, a standpoint of having things and taking care of them, but also just like being able to like constantly solve problems and, and have little successes, you know, while you're tinkering around and on what's a hobby, you know? Yeah. And what I've, you know, what I've personally found, like I've actually owned bikes um, mm -hmm. It's been a while, but say motorcycle maintenance or the woodworking from my from my perspective is just the mindfulness of just being focused right and now it's therapeutic right it's you're not like, spooled up in your head at all right. you're just like you're you've got what's right in front of you, and yeah. that's what you're that's what you're thinking about exactly. yeah and then another thing that does that for me is riding motorcycles, which um unlike you know riding driving a car. Uh, where you essentially have a cage around you and it's it's climate controlled and you have the radio on or or talking to someone on a motorcycle, you have to be much more aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. You get much more of sensory input from the temperature to the lighting to the smells, um, and you're you you basically have like a a free mind because you're on the. Uh, mm -hmm ironically you have a free mind because you're constantly focused on what you're doing right yep. and uh you know i can just come back from a multi-day motorcycle trip in the mountains or uh, you know in the southwest or something and just be like totally refreshed um because i spent that many days not thinking about bills or yeah. 
thing to do's or emails I have to write or anything like that. And that's a wrap. Thank you guys for checking this episode out. I hope that you uh, you got some some good takeaways to take with you. I personally like that the calculated risks that he talked about um, in the advice that that he would give to other makers or entrepreneurs. I think that that's super important that you don't bite off more than you can chew and that you uh, you make sure you have a soft landing when you take those risks. After this uh, conversation, Ryan was super generous to give me a private tour of the distillery, the still room, and um, see into the processes a bit more. And with that content, I took photos and we chatted about the building more. I put together a longer form featured story on makerviews.com, so check that out. And then alongside this episode, I will be making show notes um, along with a text-based transcript of the interview for accessibility and just referencing a few things that he discussed. Again, if you can, um, please leave reviews, subscribe, share this with your friends. I'd be forever grateful. Check out this tune. It was in the intro. Here's the outro. I had fun making it. It's kind of wild. Cue the dance moves. Cheers. Cheers.